Welcome to In Layman's Terms, a podcast that tells stories about the body of Christ. Once a month, I share a story about people living as disciples of Jesus. Other weeks, I share brief lessons from the Bible. I'm your host, Todd Seifert. I have more than 20 years of experience teaching Sunday school classes for teenagers on up to 90-somethings. My day job is working in communications ministry for the United Methodist Church in what is known as the Great Plains Conference, meaning the approximately 1,000 churches of Kansas and Nebraska. My goal is to introduce concepts about Jesus Christ to people who either haven't read the Bible before, who have a difficult time understanding the Bible, or who just want a refresher. As the name of the podcast suggests, my message comes to you in layman's terms. I'm not ordained clergy, but I study the Bible regularly, and I'm excited to share stories and concepts with you about God's love for you and for all people. Let's dive into this week's Bible lesson. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. One of the purposes of this podcast is to help people get better acquainted with the Bible. So I think it's appropriate to talk about the birth of Jesus, especially since this episode will air just before Christmas. As much as I love Santa Claus, Rudolph, Charlie Brown's Christmas tree, and even the redemption of Ebenezer Scrooge, this holiday really is about the arrival of the Christ child, the savior for all humankind. Shall come to the Christmas story is told primarily in the books of Matthew and Luke. So we're going to spend some time in this episode going through the entire story, in order, by merging these two books together. I hope you find this educational and a bit entertaining. So let's get started. We're in Palestine. It's about 4 or 3 before the Common Era, BCE. If you're Jewish, life can be difficult. You're living in the land promised to your ancestors, but the land is not yours. It now belongs to the strong and growing Roman Empire. The emperor has governors spread across this vast territory, and the emperor, as a way of keeping the peace and paying politically expedient favors, has propped up kings tied to the people being oppressed. Some are more politically savvy and stronger than others. One king who appears to fit that category is known as Herod the Great. Now, he's not an ethnic Jew, but he was raised in the Jewish faith by his father, a friend of Julius Caesar. Herod the Great would go on to become one of the grandest builders of all time, constructing grand cities across what we now know as Israel. He restored the grandiosity of parts of Jerusalem, and among his greatest accomplishments was the tremendous expansion and grand refurbishing of the Jewish temple there. Now, seven is an important number throughout the Bible, and it's going to play an important role in our story today. You see, it's in that temple that Herod built and expanded that our Christmas story, told to you today in seven acts, actually begins. Our first act of the story of the birth of Jesus really starts with the news of the birth of his cousin, John. We'll talk more about him further when he's an adult, known as John the Baptist. But for now, John's mother, Elizabeth, and his father, Zechariah, a priest, They were both considered blameless in their observance of the Lord's commandments. So even though, as we learn in Luke chapter 1, verse 7, they were very old, they found out that they were going to have a son. But they find out in a very unique way. Zechariah, I told you he was a priest, is chosen by lottery to go into the temple's Holy of Holies. It's where Jews considered God's very presence to exist, and this was a huge honor. 
Anyway, while he's in there, he's offering the incense offering. An angel appears directly to the right of the altar. The angel, who identifies himself as Gabriel, tells Zechariah that his son will bring many Israelites back to the Lord their God. Luke chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 say this. He will bring many Israelites back to the Lord their God. He will go forth before the Lord, equipped with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of fathers back to their children, and he will turn the disobedient to righteous patterns of thinking. He will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In other words, his son won't be the long-awaited Messiah, but his son will be the one to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now, the people, the Jewish people, they've been waiting for this for about 400 years. That's about 10 or 12 generations. It's a long time. Zechariah does what I suspect a lot of us would do if he was given this information. He asks, how can I be sure this will happen? My wife and I are very old. He's skeptical. The angel Gabriel responds, quote, I was sent to speak to you and to bring this good news to you. Know this, what I have spoken will come true at the proper time. But because you didn't believe, you will remain silent, unable to speak until the day when these things happen." Unquote. Well, sure enough, Elizabeth finds out that she is pregnant and keeps it to herself for about five months. And Zechariah goes for about nine months without being able to speak. He can't say a word. Anyway, this is a pretty miraculous thing that happens. An older woman, pregnant. We've seen this before in the Old Testament, and now we see it here in what we call the New Testament. We're going to go 30 days later, when the world will start to change forever. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. In our second act, well, it takes place in Nazareth. This is a city north of Jerusalem, and it involves that same angel, Gabriel. He gets to be the bearer of good baby news throughout this story. Let's read what the Bible has to say from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. When Elizabeth was six months pregnant, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a city in Galilee, to a virgin who was engaged to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David's house. The virgin's name was Mary. When the angel came to her, he said, Rejoice, favored one. The Lord is with you. She was confused by these words and wondered, what kind of greeting this might be? The angel said, Don't be afraid, Mary. God is honoring you. Look, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of David his father. He will rule over Jacob's house forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. Then Mary said to the angel, How will this happen since I haven't had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come over you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the one who is to be born will be holy. He will be called God's Son. Look, even in her old age, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son. This woman who was labeled unable to conceive is now six months pregnant. Nothing is impossible for God. Then Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said. And then the angel left her. 
going to pause for just a moment to stress just how huge this news is. It's a virgin birth. That's truly a miracle. That alone's worth noting. But how Mary takes this news shows how cool of customer she is and how devout of servant of God she is. Now, we don't really know how old she was, but tradition tells us she was very young, probably a teenager and probably younger than 16. Some of the things I've read tell me that she could be as young as 12 or 13. Now, don't judge. This was a very different time and a very different culture. Girls got married very young then, much younger than they do now. And let's be honest, part of that is because people just didn't live as long as they do now. We also don't know how old Joseph is. Some commentaries guess that he was an older teenager. Others say he was perhaps in his 30s. Still others say he was possibly an older widower. The point here is that these two were betrothed to be married, and suddenly Mary finds herself pregnant with a child that is not Joseph's. It's grounds for scandal, for ridicule, possibly the end of her life, or at least any kind of quality of life that she had planned on, in an era when life is tough enough as it is. Mary does what I think a lot of young girls would do as she tried to come to grips with what was happening and getting her head around what to do next. She goes away. She goes away to family. Oh, come, oh, come, Our third act begins with Mary hurrying to a city in what is identified as in the Judean Highlands, to the home of a relative, and that relative's name was Elizabeth. Remember her? She's the mother-to-be of John the Baptist that we met at the beginning of our story. We read about a brief encounter from Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 45. Mary got up and hurried to a city in the Judean highlands. She entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. With a loud voice, she blurted out, God has blessed you above all women, and he has blessed the child you carry. Why do I have this honor, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. Happy is she who believed what the Lord would fulfill the promises he made to her. These two pregnant relatives can support each other. How are they related? Well, some translations say they were cousins, but if they were cousins, they likely were not first cousins. Remember, Mary's most likely a teenager or a young girl, and Elizabeth is beyond typical childbearing years. So Elizabeth could be an aunt or a distant cousin. Regardless, they're relatives, they know each other, and they are each carrying important little boys. Now Mary stays there about three months, or possibly until Elizabeth gives birth, and then Mary heads home to face her new reality. We'll focus on Mary in just a few minutes, but we'll wrap up Elizabeth's part of this story first. It comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. When the time came for Elizabeth to have her child, she gave birth to a boy. Her neighbors and relatives celebrated with her because they had heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy. On the eighth day, it came time to circumcise the child. They wanted to name him Zechariah because that was his father's name. But his mother replied, No, his name will be John. They said to her, None of your relatives have that name. Then they began gesturing to his father to see what he wanted to call him. 
After asking for a tablet, he surprised everyone by writing, His name is John. At that moment, Zechariah was able to speak again, and he began praising God. All their neighbors were filled with awe, and everyone throughout the Judean highlands talked about what had happened. All who heard about this considered it carefully. They said, What then will this child be? Indeed, the Lord's power was with him. So Zechariah the priest, who lost his ability to speak when he questioned the angel of Gabriel, suddenly could talk again. So what does he do? He shares a prophecy made known to him. He has some poignant words for his son in verses 76 through 79. You, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. You will tell his people how to be saved through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's deep compassion, the dawn from heaven will break upon us to give light to those who are sitting in the darkness and in the shadows of death to guide us on the path of peace. We learn that this child, John, grew up to be strong in character. He lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry. And we'll hear about what happens 30 years later in future episodes. Those are the first few acts of our story. When we come back to in layman's terms, we'll continue our Christmas story with the parts you're probably much more familiar with. We'll venture to Bethlehem right after this. Matthew 28 tells us to make disciples of Jesus Christ, but how can you do that? You can help by providing some inspiration each morning to someone else. Just go to www.greatplainsumc.org dailydevotions. Once there, you'll find a QR code and a link to a sign-up page. Pick your day and your topic. If you need some assistance, there's even a link to the Vanderbilt University Daily Lectionary. Follow the instructions for submitting your devotion, and you've done your part to help inspire and encourage others in their Christian walk. Again, that's www.greatplainsumc.org dailydevotions. Help make more disciples today. Welcome back to In Layman's Terms. This episode, we're going through the Christmas story, looking at the books of Matthew and Luke, combining them together and giving you the Christmas story in order. We're going to tell this in seven acts, or seven sub-stories within the full story of Jesus' birth. We're up to Act 4. And it begins with us briefly in the book of Matthew. Now, I know it can be confusing because we were just in the book of Luke. So why use two different books to tell this story? Well, I want you to think of the Gospels as eyewitness accounts. They're stories told from the perspectives of people who were there, but told to specific audiences for specific reasons. It's like if we were to have four of us go to hmm, a NASCAR race. One of us sits high in the stands, one of us sits in the press box, one of us sits at the trailer park around turn four, and the other gets to hang out on pit road. We could all see the race, but we would see it from very different perspectives. And the people who tend to be in those locations have some differences. So we may each have some slightly different audiences that we're talking to. Those kinds of factors and differences hold true for the Gospels as well. So that's why we have four different stories. Anyway, we turn now to Matthew. Mary has returned from staying with Elizabeth, and she is probably more and more obviously pregnant. We'll pick up at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 24.
This is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. When Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph, before they were married, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off their engagement quietly. As he was thinking about this, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place so that what the Lord had spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did just as the angel had said, and took Mary as his wife. I want to pause for just a moment to give some props to Joseph here. Sometimes I wonder what I would have done if I'd been in his place. You know, this poor guy gets shoved off to the side of the story for a lot of people, to a marginal role, when really he's got an important part. Notice that he showed instant obedience to God. He took Mary as his wife as soon as he wakes up from the dream. He knows he's the stepfather to the Son of God. Now that is pressure. Okay, now we bounce back to Luke. This time the second chapter, verses 1 to 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus declared that everyone throughout the empire should be enrolled in the tax lists. This first enrollment occurred when Quirinius governed Syria. Everyone went to their own cities to be enrolled. Since Joseph belonged to David's house and family line, he went up from the city of Nazareth in Galilee to David's city, called Bethlehem, in Judea. He went to be enrolled together with Mary, who was promised to him in marriage, and who was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for Mary to have her baby. She gave birth to her firstborn child, a son, wrapped him snugly, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the guest room. Yes, the story of Jesus' birth takes place amid a call for taxes. People in those days had to travel to their cities of origin to be counted and to have taxes assessed. The Romans had to pay for those paved roads, the baths, and the aqueducts, after all, and also those armies that were oppressing the people. So Joseph and a very pregnant Mary traveled to Bethlehem. Now, that's about 97 miles from Nazareth. This was no overnight trip on foot. Some biblical translations say the baby was laid in a manger, meaning there is an implication that the baby was born in a stable because, quote, there was no room for them in the inn, unquote. Just who was that mean innkeeper? Our nativity sets and images almost always reflect that idea that Jesus was born in a stable because the innkeeper couldn't make way for a pregnant lady. It makes you angry, doesn't it? I mean, who does that? But that probably isn't quite the way that it happened anyway. You see, hospitality would have been essential in Jewish culture back then just as it is now, and they would have been traveling to see family. The word for inn very well could be translated to mean home or guest room. And in houses in this era, animals often had one level or a dedicated space so the owners could keep them safe and care for them a little easier. People lived in another level of the home or in a different space. And cribs never have been something every family just happens to have. I know we don't have one in our house, so if someone needing a crib showed up, we would be scrambling to put together blankets, pillows, and baskets to fashion into a crib or a bed. In first century Bethlehem, it's possible that such a scramble led to bringing up a manger from where the animals were, 
stuffing it with straw and blankets to create a bed for a newborn. It's still a manger. It's still important that Jesus is there. It's still a humble beginning for the ruler of God's kingdom. But it probably wasn't in a stable among cows and sheep and all the other critters. When I traveled to Israel in early 2019, I had the opportunity to tour what's called the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. It's now in the Palestinian territory. It's a beautiful church, with ruins underneath the church visible for visitors to see. A golden star marks the spot where at least some people think this blessed event took place, where the manger actually sat. Our group was able to go inside this small space and sing Christmas carols as we stood there. It was an experience that generated all kinds of goosebumps. It truly was a holy experience. Oh, come, oh, come, Let's move on to Act 5 of our story, and it takes place not far from there, in the hills around Bethlehem. Which, by the way, Bethlehem, it is far from a flat city. These days, the area around it is known as Shepherd's Fields, and it's where our story picks up in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. Nearby, shepherds were living in the fields, guarding their sheep at night. The Lord's angels stood before them, the Lord's glory shone around them, and they were terrified. The angel said, Don't be afraid. Look, I bring good news to you, wonderful, joyous news for all people. Your Savior is born today in David's city. He is Christ the Lord. This is a sign for you. You will find a newborn baby wrapped snugly and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great assembly of the heavenly forces was with the angel praising God. They said, Glory to God in heaven, and on earth peace among you whom he favors. When the angels returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go right now to Bethlehem and see what's happened. Let's confirm what the Lord has revealed to us. They went quickly and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. When they saw this, they reported what they had been told about this child. Everyone who heard it was amazed at what the shepherds told them. Mary committed these things to memory and considered them carefully. The shepherds returned home, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Everything happened just as they had been told. I think it's kind of cool that these shepherds, kind of the lowest on the rung of society, are the first people outside the family to visit, recognize, and worship Jesus. Can you imagine what that must have been like? You're in a field doing your job. It's peaceful. When all of a sudden a choir of angels shows up and not only dazzles you with light, but gives you specific instructions on how to find the Christ child, it would be amazing and probably more than a little scary. But this was news they had been waiting for, like so many other Jewish people. Remember, they've been waiting for 400 plus years for this. So they immediately leave for Bethlehem, down the hill slash mountain, to see this amazing baby. turn to in layman's terms, we'll conclude our Christmas story by looking at what happens after Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus finish what they had to do in Bethlehem. How does your church celebrate big events? How does it gather the community together? How does it sometimes introduce you to people you might not have known? Many times in the Great Plains, it's with a potluck dinner. And that's what we try to do with our podcast, Potluck. This is David Burke from the Great Plains Conference and host of Potluck, where we do, in audio form, all the things a potluck dinner does. Celebrate big events, 
gather the community, and introduce you to new and interesting people. Listen to Potluck, available at greatplainsumc.org. Welcome back to In Layman's Terms. We're telling the Christmas story this week. Kind of like a story with seven acts. And right now, we're up to act six of our important story. It's eight days after Mary has given birth. And as was custom, Mary and Joseph bring baby Jesus to the temple to be circumcised and to be given his official name. Two people there in the temple recognize, with the help of the Holy Spirit, the importance of this child. The first, a man named Simeon, is described as righteous and devout, a man who had eagerly awaited the restoration of Israel. Simeon tells the parents, This boy is a sign to be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that generates opposition, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your innermost being too. Another person, named Anna, was known as a prophet. She was an 84-year-old widow who, Scripture tells us, never left the temple area and worshiped God by fasting and with prayer day and night. Verse 38 tells us, She approached at that very moment and began to praise God and speak about Jesus to everyone who was looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Then, we read that Mary and Joseph, having completed their duties required under the Mosaic Law, those rules in the first five books of the Bible, all 613 of them, returned to their hometown of Nazareth in the part of Israel known as Galilee. Now, that sounds like the end of our story, right? But wait, what about those three wise men that we sing about? Well, let's talk about them. They'll be Acts 7 of our story. But they didn't visit Bethlehem. They probably never ran into those shepherds who came to see Jesus the day he was born. Let's see what the Bible has to say from Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the territory of Judea during the rule of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. They asked, Where's the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen this star in the east and we've come to honor him. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him. He gathered all of the chief priests and the legal experts and asked them where the Christ was to be born. They said, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means are you least among the rulers of Judah, because from you will come one who governs, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and found out from them the time when the star first appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search carefully for the child. When you found him, report to me, so that I too may go and honor him. When they heard the king, they went, and looked, the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with Mary his mother. Falling to their knees, they honored him. Then they opened their treasure chests and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route. This is the star we talk about in the Christmas story. It's why we have stars atop our Christmas trees today. Where did those wise men, the Magi, come from, and who were they? Well, some scholars think they were mystics intrigued by the star. Others say they were astrologers or even scientists for whom the star captivated their attention. 
The Bible says they came from the east, but it doesn't say how far east. It could be as close as modern-day Iraq and as far away as modern-day India. Either way, the shortest distance is about 970 miles, or about a month's walk, and that's if it's all on the back of a fast-moving camel. We also don't know how many there were. The old hymn, We Three Kings, makes a guess, but it's just based on the three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I've heard some pastors suppose that these travelers must have been important, at least enough to gain an audience with the king of the region, and probably were larger in number than just three people, or else they wouldn't have caused quite a stir. There's no reason to be scared of three people, especially three people who have just traveled a long way. They're tired, they're dirty, they don't have weapons of any kind, I'm assuming anyway. Certainly not enough to overthrow a Roman garrison. It's more likely there were dozens of them, if not more, which in turn means they would have taken longer to travel to Nazareth. If you read Bible commentaries, many of them seem to settle on the idea that the Magi visited when Jesus was between 18 months old and 2 years old. Look again at the scriptures about the shepherds and then the Magi. It's clear the shepherds see a baby. That's the word that's used, baby. But the Magi see the mother and her child. That's the word that's used. A word that means the boy is older than a baby, though we don't know exactly how old. I guess in the end, it really doesn't matter. These magi would not have been Jewish, but they came to find and worship a Jewish boy that they knew would be something truly great one day. They made one heck of a long journey and then took steps not to let the increasingly unsteady king of the region, Herod, know where they had found the baby, thus helping save Jesus' young life. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Well, that is the story of Christmas. It's the story of when Jesus came into the world as a baby boy to live among us. Eventually, we'll learn that Jesus came to teach us. He's going to show us what it means to love and to stand up for the marginalized. He'll talk about the kingdom of heaven and how he is the key to that grand eternal resting place. But he also will stress that we are supposed to be agents of loving change so the kingdom of heaven can be found right here on earth in this creation. I hope you enjoyed this telling of the Christmas story. In layman's terms, it's going to take a couple of weeks off now for the holidays. I hope you and your family have a very Merry Christmas and a prosperous and happy New Year. In January, we'll start digging into the teachings of Jesus through what are called parables, stories that help us better understand what Christ was trying to teach us about how to live, how to treat each other. I think you're going to be educated. I think you're going to have some fun, and I know I'm going to have fun researching these and telling these stories to you. So grace and peace to you this holiday season. God bless. Terms is a podcast sponsored by the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church and by me, your host, Todd Seifer. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go rate us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. It helps other people find us. And please, if you feel so inclined, share us on Facebook or other social media. Our music comes via a licensed subscription with FirstCom Music. You can find archive podcasts on my website, toddseifert.com, or via a link on the conference website, greatplainsumc.org slash podcasts. Feel free to email me any questions or suggestions to tcypher at greatplainsumc.org 
and I'll do my best to respond as quickly as possible. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, please do what you can to help make more disciples of Jesus Christ. You can play a small part in helping change a life.